0: Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good besides You. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Father, we come this morning, I imagine, Lord, I know for myself, but I imagine for so many others uh, with many things spinning around us. With a world, Father, that it seems as though it's spinning out of control, much less our our personal lives and our circumstances. So much going on. And Father, on this morning, I pray that you would help our spirits to dial down and to kneel before you and to sit in your presence and recognize, Lord, what's truly going on, even in this psalm. And I pray, Father, Spirit, would you minister to the hearts of those who who especially need ministering to this morning. And fix our eyes on Jesus. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is like a box of cereal. For those of you who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you may recall the glory days of Saturday morning cartoons and boxes of cereal containing surprises. I remember Friday was grocery shopping day. That was when my mom went every week, and every week I got dragged along to the store, but I would immediately bolt for the cereal aisle and spend the entire time trying to guess what was going to be in what box. This was before they started advertising and really they they just would put, put a toy in there. Those are days gone by. <laughs> And I would get home with my mom and take that big box of cereal and pull out the big pitcher and dump all the cereal into it just to get the toy out. And then put the cereal back. And normally it was cereal I didn't like very much anyway. I wouldn't even eat it. But the toy. Oh, the toy. And then Saturday morning, I'd wake up, and I'd remember the toy. Got the toy. And I'd get the toy, and i get my bowl of cereal, and I'd watch those Saturday morning cartoons. Good times. Good times. I have come to experience the Word of God in a very similar way. It is like a box of cereal. I open up the Word always now expecting some kind of surprise. And I find it. I'm never disappointed. This morning as we open Psalm 16, aspects of it may seem familiar to you. There are verses we tend to quote out of here, verses we like to to use to focus on Jesus. Other verses that are just encouraging. But I want you to understand The surprise that's here. That's that's what we're looking for this morning. Now the psalm is called a miktam of David. A miktam. It's the first time we've seen that word. It'll be applied a few more times. Psalm 56 through 60 are also miktams of David. What is a miktam? What is David saying in, in even the writing of this psalm? Some believe it's just a musical term, a technical term, that describes the type of Hebrew poetry. Perhaps it's an epigram. An epigram is simply a concise poem that expresses a single thought. Maybe that's what's going on here. And truly, this is a concise poem. It does express a very specific and single thought, a single prayer to the Lord. But others call this miktam. In fact, some of your Bible translations, if you have something other than the NASB, might say this is a golden psalm of David. Because there are those who think that the word miktam is literally golden or precious. A precious psalm, a golden Psalms. What I find most intriguing is that the word miktam in the Hebrew is very similar to an immediately contemporary Arabic word of the day, maktum. Miktam maktum. Remember the Jews and the Arabs are brothers. Remember they lived in the land together. They do claim back to the the seed of Abraham, the, the Jewish seed coming through Isaac and then Jacob as opposed to Ishmael. And so, we have this, this interesting Arabic word, maqtum. What does that mean? It means hidden. Secret. A secret psalm. A, a hidden psalm. Or something hidden within. As we consider Psalm 16, all three definitions, it, to my mind, fit very well. This is a psalm of a precious secret. A psalm with a single message that's got something hidden within. What is the single message? What's the epigram of this psalm? The psalm is the expression of joyous faith and confident hope, specifically in the face of death. That's how this is being written. Someone facing death, but with absolute assurance. Someone who knows their death is imminent, and yet they have incredible hope. What was going on in David's life when he wrote this psalm? We don't know. There's nothing that gives indication or hint about it. We just don't know what was happening for him. But I suggest to you that perhaps it doesn't matter at all what was going on in David's life, that this psalm truly wasn't even written specifically about David's immediate experience. The Holy Spirit has already revealed to us the preciousness of this psalm, what it's about, where it comes from, and that it's a miktam, of Messiah. Keep your finger there in Psalm 16 and turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter is speaking by the Holy Spirit. Note that. David wrote the Psalm by the Holy Spirit. How do we know? 1 Samuel 16:13. David, when he was anointed, God had His Holy Spirit come upon David from that day forward. David was a Spirit-filled man. Anointed as king, yes, but also a man who, who bore the Holy Spirit. When he wrote, he wrote prophetically. He wrote as of the Spirit of Christ. And so Peter, speaking by that same Spirit in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, Peter continues, I may confidently say that to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Now this is amazing to me. Remarkable. And, And it kind of completes a circle of understanding here. That the Lord poured His Holy Spirit out on David. That the Lord poured His Holy Spirit out on Peter. And David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Now Peter speaking by the same Spirit gives us explanation of what was being said a thousand years before by King David. Again, it doesn't matter what was happening in David's life because David wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about Messiah in this psalm. If you need a little more scriptural backing for this, 1 Peter 1, verse 10, tells us, "...as to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow." Wow! Wow! I mean, Peter says something amazing. And it shouldn't surprise us, and yet it is amazing. And it's not just some vague spirit speaking to the prophets. It was Christ. It was Jesus Himself, the Spirit of Christ, speaking to the prophets about what was going to happen to Christ and who would know better than Christ to tell what was going to happen to Christ. And this is what's going on in Psalm 16. Go a little further in the book of Acts over to chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. In verse 32, Paul is now preaching. We have had Peter declare that Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Let's see what Paul says in verse 32 of Acts chapter 13. We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, He also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Psalm 16 is a mictum of Messiah. Go back there now. I want to walk us through this. It is a psalm about Jesus. But there's something even more surprising here to consider I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, although this is very much my leaning. But Psalm 16 not only speaks about Jesus in His death and resurrection, Psalm 16 may have been spoken by Jesus. Well, Rick, you already told us that. If the Spirit of Christ revealed this to David, then obviously Jesus spoke this. I'm talking about at a specific time, in a specific place. That is, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gospels only give single sentence excerpts, a few of which we'll see, of Jesus as he knelt in the garden. Jesus on the night of his betrayal, following Passover, and before his death. And you know, wow, what a crazy time. The fact that Jesus maintained his presence of mind is astounding to me. Les came up this morning and said, hey, can we pray for this little guy? And and I said, yeah, you're going to have to remind me. Because for me, it's one of those days where lot's going on. We've got the global day of prayer. We've got our worship this morning and the teaching. And, and, and you know, I'm still waking up. And all this is happening. And if you're anything like me, when there's a lot of things going on, it's, it's kind of hard for me to focus. I, I'm a one-track guy. I was explaining that to Naomi the other day. She didn't understand. I showed her the train track. I said, okay, it's like this train, see? And you try and put me on another track and I derail. What's derail? And we had this whole conversation about, you know, how I can only handle one thing at a time. And here's Jesus. It's Passover. All the apostles are gathered around. They have their Passover meal. That's a big deal. Making sure all the you know, the elements are there and they, and they celebrate it correctly and Jesus gives the new explanation. If you read John 14, 15, and 16, all oh, the, the, the teaching there is phenomenal. And then out of that, we're told that they leave this place and they head across the Kidron Valley and up into Gethsemane. Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. He knows he's about to face six trials. He knows he's going to be crucified by the next morning. He knows this. And what does he do? In the midst of all this going on, he goes to Gethsemane. And he stops. And he prays. And this is not only an example to us, but it's incredibly poignant. And I wonder sometimes what was on your mind, Lord? What were you thinking? And did the Holy Spirit actually reveal that prayer to David? Could it be? Again, I don't want to be absolute and dogmatic about this, but at a minimum, this psalm is a picture for us of the joyous faith and confident hope of Jesus in the face of His own death there in the garden. But it's possible this was the prayer that Jesus actually prayed there. Let's let's follow it through. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God for I take refuge in you. Immediately you get the sense of Jesus there in the garden where He pleads for His life, preserve me, save me. Well, Rick, doesn't say that in the New Testament, but that's what He was praying. Lord, if it be possible, there's got to be another way. Save my life. I, I, I'm, I'm asking, Father. And as the psalm begins, there He is. Matthew 26.38 tells us to His close friends, Jesus said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And from there, Jesus goes off a distance and He kneels down and begins to pray. And we're told in Hebrews 5.7 that in the days of His flesh He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. Heard, yes, but not answered to His favor. Not given His request. At that point, we're told an angel came and ministered to Him in the midst of His prayer. Why is that? Because doctors tell us that Jesus should never have walked out of the garden alive. I mean, prior to the beatings, prior to the mistreatment, prior to being nailed up to the cross, prior to the crown of thorns and all the ugliness of the coming hours... He should not have walked out of the Garden of Gethsemane alive, but should have died right there. What are you talking about? Luke 22.44 describes that process doctors call hematidrosis. Whereas Jesus prayed with fervency and anxiety and and angst that, that literally the sweat became drops of blood. Pouring out of his forehead, expanding capillaries that burst just under the skin. And when a person is at this point, the likelihood of survival is nil. When someone gets this stressed out, the usual result is death. Jesus has blood coming out of his forehead as he's praying in the garden because he is so torn up. Why is he so torn up? Because his flesh is crying, Live! And the Spirit is saying, Lord. Verse 2, I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides You. The NASB translates this very well. It's the ultimate acceptance of the Lordship of God the Father, not by David, but by God the Son. He says, "Oh Lord, I said to the Lord, Yahweh is the word there, You are my Lord, Adonai. Father, Lord, and He says, My Lord, Ani Adonai, actually. The word Ani in the Hebrew is the first person singular pronoun which describes absolute dependence. You are My Lord. I am dependent on You and You alone. Jesus is not off talking to the apostles about His plight, His situation. That's what I would have been doing. I mean, just to be honest. I would have headed into the garden and said, guys, gather around me. I need some counsel here. I need some prayer. And then, rather than praying, we would have talked about what I needed for half an hour. Jesus says, wait here. I've got to go to the place of my absolute, ultimate dependence. I've got to go talk to my Adonai, my Lord. I have no good besides you, He says. Literally, my goodness is nothing apart from you. My goodness is because of you. Now, how could Jesus say that? I mean, Jesus is God. How could He say that? In Mark chapter 10, verse 18, after someone calls Jesus good teacher, I love His response, why do you call me good? No one's good, except for God. Why would you even use that word to describe me? It can only truly describe God, and the implication is not that Jesus wasn't good. (laughs) No, the implication is Jesus is God. John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on My own initiative, but the Father abiding in Me does His works. I have no good besides you. Verse 3, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all My delight. Now this is interesting. The saints, Kadosh, in the Hebrew... But note what He says. Kadosh it means holy ones, saints. But it's not referring to angels. Notice He says the saints who are in the earth. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. In the earth. We're talking about people. The people of God. And Jesus delights in them. He absolutely delights in them. What was Jesus thinking about in the garden? What was it that that pushed Him to the final decision to accept complete obedience and go to the cross? What was it? The saints in all the earth. You. Me. Can you grasp for a moment that while Jesus knelt in the garden in all that anguish, that your face came to His mind? That going through Jesus' mind at that time were the faces of all those who would be the saints in the earth, those who would believe, those who would follow, those who would trust Him with their lives. Can you grasp that in the midst of His worst anxiety, that you're that important to Him? You need to grasp it because it's the truth. Well, I'm no saint, Pastor. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Well, I don't look like a saint. What does a saint look like? Like long robes? Well, you'll get those later. If you are born again by faith in Jesus, you are a saint. And this is an undeniable truth of Scripture. Ephesians 2.19 You're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Okay, maybe I can accept saints as a title if I have to. But majestic ones? (laughs) Come on. They're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I can't accept majestic ones. Well, perhaps we should go back to Psalm 8. Verse 4. Do you remember what we talked about last week? What is man that you take thought of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and... What's the word? Majesty. Majesty. The majestic ones of the earth. <laughs> and the majestic ones are those in whom Jesus puts all of his delight. <laughs> Jesus delights in you. He doesn't just think about you. He doesn't just look at you and go, Yeah, doing my best to save him. It's a tough one, but you know, we'll get him there. <laughs> He delights in you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, Both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I'll proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is Jesus speaking. Calling you, calling me, his brothers and sisters. And it's astounding. Because he is God and we never will be. And yet Jesus delights so much in you, he calls you brother, sister, sibling, by choice. You know, one of the, one of the things that to me has been the most delightful in bringing Anna, Maria, and Naomi and David home from Ghana has been watching the interplay between the three of them and Corey, Hannah, and Hayden. But we didn't know until they got home exactly how it would work. You know, blending this family and having now six kids, but three from Africa and three from America. And how was that going to work? You know, how are they going to interact? What was going to happen there? And it's marvelous. I mean, to watch Hayden and Anna Marie go at it just cracks me up. You'd think they were born and raised brother and sister all their lives. <laughs> How they taunt each other and chase each other around the house and and fight like normal siblings and laugh like normal siblings and go out on the trampoline and beat each other up like normal siblings. And to see the interaction, Corey holding David, what a precious thing to watch. Until David came along, the only thing that made Corey smile that big was Nintendo. But now, (laughs) to see the, the look on his face... To watch Hannah and, and Naomi, it's, it's incredible. And this is what Jesus says He wants with you. That kind of interplay. Brother and sister. Sister and brother. Brother and brother. Because He delights in you. And John 1.12 tells us, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Okay, but what about those who don't? What about those who don't receive His name, who choose not to follow Him? Guess what? In the garden, Jesus was thinking about them too. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. And I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. What does that mean? As David writes, it's an allusion to pagan worship. The drink offerings of blood. Perhaps you recall Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they had that epic showdown. And Elijah says, go ahead and call on Baal. Build your altar, call on Baal, let's see what happens. See if he'll send fire from heaven. And the prophets are going at it all day long and they're getting intense. We're told in 1 Kings 18.28, They cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And the same pagan practices go on today. What do you mean? It's the same mentality that flows in the veins of every Muslim who believes that by blowing themselves up and taking out Jewish people that somehow they will secure their salvation. If I cause my own blood to flow, that will appease the God and I'll I'll be saved for it. But well, see, the reality is there is only one blood type that was ever pure enough to save. Only one kind of blood can save you, and it is not your blood. There's not an ounce or a drop of human blood that can save us, except for 1 Peter 1:19, 1, the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now David wrote this, but here Jesus saying this, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall pour out their drink offerings of blood. It's not going to do them any good. He says, nor will I take their names upon my lips. What the Spirit of Christ declares through the psalmist David is this, I will not endorse them. I will not endorse their vain worship. Let me ask you a question. Do you? Do you endorse the vain worship of those who have rejected Christ by their lifestyle, by their attitudes, by what they believe? Is tolerance more important to you than the Gospel? Do you ever say, well, I don't agree with this person, I don't agree with their faith, but I'm going to respect their right to believe this, however bogus or false. I'm going to tolerate that. Do you, by non-challenge, by non-speaking, do you endorse their vain worship? Hey, it's cool. You're a Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, Wicca, whatever. But it's not cool. It's not cool. It's actually going to be very hot. Come on, man, let's just all coexist. You know how I feel about that bumper sticker. (laughs) I hate it. Because I'm an intolerant bigot? No, because it fosters an attitude that damns the existence of anyone who doesn't accept Jesus. That's what we're saying, Games. And I'm sorry to be brutal about this, but if we say, hey, believe whatever you want, we're saying, as I've shared before, go to hell. Be happy now. <laughs> you know, get 30 or 40 years of Wicca experience. Enjoy yourself. I'm not going to bug you about it. You know, whatever. You live all the We'll do our thing. And you know where that will end. I know where it will lead. And Jesus says, nor will I take their names upon my lips. I won't do it. I will not endorse false belief. I will not endorse anything that will lead someone away from the Father. Matthew 10, verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess him before My Father who is in heaven. That's great news. Jesus speaking your name, if you will but speak His name. But Jesus also said, Whoever denies Me before men, I will also deny him before My Father who is in heaven. And why should He confess you if you won't confess Him? Oh, I don't know Him. I'm sorry, Lord, I... I don't know her. I don't know this one. We talk about often the confession of Christ. This is the confession of Christ. This is Jesus' confession. You know, we confess Christ here. Jesus' confession is your name, is you, is speaking. Yes, Rick, yes, I know him. He's one of mine. He's one of the saints in whom I delight. Now they're going, is that my name? Nothing really satisfies we saying. Like when you say my name. Like when you speak my name. The, 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 the name Rick would come off of the lips of Jesus. And I know He's spoken it before and I can't wait to hear Him speak it again. Voltaire? No, I, I don't know him. For he denied knowing me. We talked about that Wednesday night. You might want to listen to that teaching. Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Listen, if you haven't been pulled into Gethsemane until now, pay attention. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, He went a little beyond, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as You will. What cup is Jesus talking about? It's the cup of sorrow, the cup of affliction, the cup of excruciating death. Matthew twenty six forty two. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, "My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done." Look again at verse five. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Now you might say. Okay, but Rick, if this is Jesus' prayer in Psalm 16, it doesn't match up. Because in Psalm 16, it says the Lord is His cup, and in Matthew, He says, may this cup pass from Me. Well, one is the cup of the Lord, Psalm 16, and the other is clearly the cup of sorrow, Matthew 26, so it can't be the same prayer. Listen, in the garden, Jesus accepted one cup and gave up the other. Let this cup pass from me. That's what the Gospel writers detail to us. But by saying that, what he's saying is, the Lord who is my portion and my cup, I will receive this cup. The cup of his inheritance. The cup that he wanted. He sets aside for the cup of my sin and your sorrow that he did not want. And it was just hours before. Jesus spoke of the cup specifically mentioned in Psalm 16, verse 5. Matthew 26:29. He said, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. The Lord is my portion and my, of My inheritance and My cup. I will drink this cup, but before I drink that cup, I have another one to drink. The cup of sorrow. The cup of sin. For Jesus to come to the joyful cup of his inheritance, first he had to face the greatest terror of his physical existence. The greatest terror of his eternal existence. What do you mean? It's my opinion. Many of you have seen the, uh, the movie The Passion. And in it, Jesus depicted in the garden, and in the background you see this satanic figure moving among the trees, tempting. You know, I think that's a stretch. I don't think that Jesus was terrified of Satan in the garden. Not at all. I don't think personally that Jesus was terrified of your sin and mine, though monstrous it was. Though He could recognize looking at all that He would have to take on His shoulders, yet that would absolutely terrify the strongest of any of us. I still don't think that was it. I believe that what terrified Jesus more than anything else was that He knew for the only time in all eternity He would be separated from His Father. And that is a terrifying thought. I may have shared it before, but I had a childhood nightmare that was simple. It wasn't monsters, dogs chasing me, tidal waves. I and mean, It wasn't any of those weird things. It was... It was my family in the big yellow station wagon driving up this hill, kind of big circular drive. I, can, I still remember it to this day. To a big hotel. And there's a bench in front of the hotel. And everybody got out of the car and I got out of the car and we're going to the hotel. And my parents set me down on the bench and everybody hugged me and said goodbye and they got in the car and left. My grandma was even there. <laughs> I didn't understand, and I remember waking up, and and I had a secure childhood, I really did. But, But that, that thought terrified me. And I believe that's what terrified Jesus. And no one, no one has known loneliness like Jesus has known loneliness. No one has been that alone. Matthew 27, 46, when He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus understood what this meant. Jesus knew what His solitary confinement would mean for us. Verse 6 of Psalm 16, "...the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me." And Isaiah 53, verse 11, Isaiah prophesied, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And again, we are the beautiful heritage. <laughs> Just too, almost too much to believe, isn't it? We are the beautiful heritage of Jesus. But that's truly how He views it. Hebrews 12.2 Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are that joy. Verse 7 I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And dark was the night in Gethsemane. And in the place of His greatest anguish, Jesus does the amazing to me. He seeks the counsel of the Father. Now, it shouldn't amaze me, but it does. Because as I said earlier, when things are are spinning around me and it's crazy and there's a lot going on, that's when Jesus said, time to pray. Time to get quiet. It's not time to come up with a new plan or strategy, a new form of attack, a new way to handle all this. It's not time to gather all the counselors of the world around. It's just time to seek the counsel of God. And he says, note this: my mind will instruct me. My mind will instruct me. The Hebrew word for mind there is kilyah, which means literally, interesting, kidneys. My kidneys will instruct me. Alright, that's a little weird. I, I thought that he said, you said that the Lord counseled him. The Lord will counsel me in my kidneys, instruct me in the night. What, if, what does his kidneys have to teach him? Think about this. What do kidneys do? They filter out the impurities from our blood. The counsel of the Lord filters impurities from my spirit. You see, I can get together and get the counsel of men, even godly men. I can pray with brothers and sisters in Christ. I can can talk with them and seek their input, but that may or may not filter the impurity from what I'm thinking, what my spirit wants to do. Only the counsel of the Lord filters impurities from my spirit. And the kidneys here, it speaks of a deep inner counsel and of the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. That's the use of the phrase, Kilia speaking of something so deep and so internal that they use the word kidneys because they think, well, that's pretty far in. you know. Talking about filtering that's going on inside of us. And that's where the Lord intends to counsel us, my friends, the innermost being, the Spirit. And we've talked recently about this. This is why thinking it through doesn't always work so well. The mind is not the most internal aspect of who you are. The spirit is. And that's where the Lord instructs. And that's where the Lord speaks. And where we need to learn to hear Him. Well, I don't hear the Lord. You're not listening with the spirit. You're listening with the mind. You're trying to think it through. Okay, well, how do I listen with the spirit? You go to Gethsemane. You get quiet. You stop stressing and pushing and trying. God, I want to hear you. Nothing. Stop trying so hard. Get quiet before the Lord. And listen. This is something I believe that it is a great learning for us. Part of the reason we have our entire lives to walk out before the Lord, that we might learn to truly hear His voice. I, I shared this midweek, and I know there are those who disagree, and that's alright, but I believe the Lord counsels audibly... I believe that we can hear the voice of the Lord. Not all the time, and it's not always spoken word. Sometimes it's impression. Sometimes it's just that you know that you know that you know that the Lord is speaking. It's it's absolutely certain. Because your spirit is hearing, but you're not going to hear if you don't quiet down and listen. If you don't intend to go to Gethsemane, even in the midst of a night of absolute turmoil, go to Gethsemane. Get quiet. Get quiet. Well, I'm just not sure if my tradition upholds that belief, Rick. Okay, Revelation 2 verse 7: He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All oh, but that's, that's just you know allegorical. All right. Really? How did David know what the Lord was saying? What do you mean? Well, look back at Psalm 12. How do you know? Psalm 12 verse 5 says, because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. In the midst of this psalm that David's writing about the Lord, suddenly David says, oh, and the Lord said this. This is what God said. How did he know? Unless he heard. He had to hear. Oh yeah, but that was King David. Yeah, King David who was flawed far more than many of you. King David, who had the same Holy Spirit that you have if you walk in Jesus. All I'm saying is that if we are going to take God at His Word, then we have to acknowledge that this David, who was as human as me and had the same Spirit that I have, heard the Lord's words and wrote them down for us in many places, quotes of God speaking. Yeah, but he was a prophet. By the Spirit of Christ same Spirit that you and I have. Jesus said in John 16.13, "...When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not, note the word, speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you." And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.16, "...Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him?" But we have, we have, we have the mind of Christ. The church, gang, is only going to be able to accomplish so much in the soul. We can gather together and we can come up with our programs and our plans and we can lay out our strategies to try and get the message out in the world and we can do good things, but we're only going to go so far in the soul. We have the mind of Christ. But until we're willing to still ourselves and listen, we're going to keep hitting a wall. And I'm speaking from experience as one who has hit a wall for years. As the Lord counseled David, deep within, even God the Father instructed Jesus, God the Son, in the darkness of Gethsemane, and we too have the mind of Christ to instruct us in the night. Verse 8. Jesus, I believe, saying, I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Note this. Jesus, arrested there in Gethsemane, put under intense scrutiny from Annas and then to Caiaphas and then to the Sanhedrin and then to Pilate and then over to Herod and then back to Pilate for a total of six trials overnight. Every single one of them unjust. Everyone completely bogus, and yet how did Jesus handle it? He remained completely unshaken. They didn't get His goats. He didn't cry. He didn't yell. He didn't shout out in the streets. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, Isaiah 53.7, yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, He did not open His mouth. Peter says, while being reviled. He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. I have set the Lord continually before Me because he's at My right hand. I will not be shaken. What was it? That gave Jesus the strength to come out of Gethsemane, already a death-defying moment, and face the onslaught of human cruelty and brutality all the way to the cross without fighting back. How did He do it? It was the Lord before Him. It was the Lord at His right hand. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. And there's a point here where you can almost see Jesus slipping into a place of sweet serenity. And a deep peace secures the heart of Jesus Christ from the garden to His death. My heart is glad. And I know, I know there's security. And they come and they take Him from the garden. And Jesus, verse 10, that famous verse For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's the declaration of the resurrection. And David, by the Spirit of Christ, spoke these words a thousand years ahead. And Jesus, I believe, there in the garden speaks these same words. David penned it. Jesus prayed it. And three days later, Jesus walked it out. The declaration of the resurrection. That's what Peter and Paul both said. This is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Both Peter and Paul said, Hey, David's tomb is here right now. You can go look at it. We can open it up as it were. Gross. Rotten David. There in decay, his body wasting away. But you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The declaration of the resurrection. And then verse 11, you will make known to Me the path of life, which is the assertion of the ascension. The assertion of the ascension. Jesus knew following the resurrection the path to life. He knew the way home. The journey awaited Him. And He would be out of there. Not immediately. Remember, He hung around 40 extra days from His crucifixion to His ascension. 40 days meeting with the apostles, encouraging them, building them up, proving Himself to them, to as many as 500 believers at a time, Paul tells us. But at the end of that time, the assertion of the ascension that Jesus knew, the path to life, was laid out before Him. And in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And this psalm gives us great insight into the heart of Christ Jesus. When He faced that most monumental decision of His entire existence there in Gethsemane, it also gives us great insight into our Gethsemane. What is the point of the Gethsemane story? Why is it there? I understand it's, it's history. And I understand that you know it's important for us to recognize that it happened, but all four Gospel writers declare Jesus in Gethsemane. All four Gospel writers put special emphasis on it. Three of the four detail the exact same thing that Jesus prayed. What was that? It's the point of the Gethsemane story. Listen again to His words, Matthew 26.39. My Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will, my Father. If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. For anyone who's ever sought or looked for the will of God in your life, have you ever asked the question, "What is God's will for me?" Big picture. Have you ever gone to a pastor, a friend, someone else, and just said, what is God's will in this situation? Have you ever opened up your Bible going, I I don't know what God's will is. God, I wish you would show me your will. It's probably one of the number one questions I've been asked in ministry life. How do I know God's will? What is God's will? Could you tell me God's will? Me? (laughs) I don't know what God's will is for you. (laughs) Actually, I do. But when we go asking, what is God's will? I think we're asking the wrong question. Did Jesus know God's will when He entered the garden? Absolutely He did. Of course He did. He'd been telling the apostles about it for well over a year. His Spirit revealed it to David a thousand years earlier. Of course Jesus knew God's will when He went into the garden and earlier that very same week in the house of Mary there in Bethany Mary and Lazarus and Martha Mary anoints Jesus remember the story with the highly expensive perfume and Jesus says Matthew 26.12 when she poured this perfume on my body she did it to prepare me for burial you better believe Jesus knew God's will before He ever set foot in Gethsemane so what were the prayers about? The prayers were not about discerning God's will. The prayers were about choosing God's will. The issue for Jesus in the garden was not discovery, but submission. The issue is the same for us. It's not about discovering God's will for your life. It's about submitting to it. Let me tell you, real quick, two things about God's will. Number one, if the Spirit of Christ is in you, You already know His will. You already know His will not only for your life, big picture, you already know His will for little things. Decisions you have to make. You know what His will is. Don't kid me, don't kid yourself. The question is not what is God's will, but will I accept it? And so often people will come and they'll say, "Uh, Pastor Rick, I, I, I need to find out what God's will is and what they're saying is, is there a loophole? (laughs) <laughs> How do I get around this will? As opposed to what it? You know what it is. I know what it is. We want to get off the hook. I want to exit the garden of pain, avoid the cross of shame, and do my own thing. That, that's what I'm asking when I say, what is God's will for my life? You know what it is. But let me tell you one other thing about God's will. It is perfect and if you knew if I knew what God knows it's what we would choose if we knew where his will would land us in the big picture we would say that's what I want rather than fighting it even if God's will is painful for you now obeying it is going to bring immediate peace you'll just you'll know And it will also bring, my friends, eternal pleasure in the presence of God. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You know, Jesus goes before us in all of this. He experiences all of this for us. He even experienced obedience to show us the will of God is perfect. What are you going to do with it? Are you willing to obey? That's why I believe Gethsemane is in the scriptures, to reveal an obedient son, the miktum of Messiah, Psalm 16, the hidden truth, precious secret, is simply this, if the spirit of Christ resides in you, as he did in David, you already know what the Lord wants you to do, so the question is just, are you willing to do it? Father, we place ourselves before you this morning. Would you teach us just to obey? Like Jesus before us, simply to walk after the manner of our Savior. And Father, thank you so much for revelation. Thank you for opening our minds to things long before they happened. And while this is remarkable and amazing, We recognize, Lord, that You know all things. Jesus, You were there from the beginning. And so we come before You, we worship You as an eternal God who truly does know the best for our lives. And we seek to be, Lord, in Your presence. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.